This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. In this episode, our news is focused mostly on small dinosaurs. We have a new Alvarezsaur, which is obviously very small. We have new descriptions of the Velociraptor-sized Saurornithelestes and Saturnalia. And then we also have dinosaur of the day, Allioramus, which is one of T-Rex's smaller cousins. But before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons who help keep our podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Rhinosaurce, Morgan Eklov, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pascoe, Gabe, Courtney, and TRX Dinosaurs. Yeah, thank you so much to everybody. And when this episode airs, because we're recording a little bit early, Garrett and I are going to be in Brisbane, Australia, covering SVP this year. And so, of course, we have extra rewards and bonuses for all of our patrons. And it's partly why we decided to release 50 Dinosaur Tales this week to celebrate. And it's also International Dinosaur Month. So (laughs) lots of good things. And it's not too late if you want to get some extra bonuses from us while we're at SVP. Specifically a postcard with some pictures from what we saw and did at SVP. You can join our growing community on patreon.com slash I know Dino. Jumping into the news, up first we have our new Alvarez Soar, and this one was written by Zi Chuan Xin and others, and published in Scientific Reports. And when I say that it's a new dinosaur, I'm actually a little bit late on this one. Came out a couple months ago. <laughs> but its name is Shishuguonicus inexpectus. And Shishuguonicus means Shishuguo claw after the Shishuguo formation where it was found. And the formation name literally translates as rock tree wash because it's all full of petrified wood all over the place. And obviously they found that before they found any dinosaur skeletons, so they named it after the first thing that they found. And then nicus means claw, and you see that as a suffix in a lot of alvarosaur dinosaurs because the latest alvarosaurs basically just had claws for hands, didn't really have anything else going on. So it's a pretty good name, I think. And then inexpectus as the species name, they said was because it was a, quote, unexpected discovery of a new Alvarosaurian species from the middle late Jurassic Shishuguo formation, which has produced fossils of two other Jurassic Alvarosaurians, i.e. Haplochirus and Aurun, end quote. So 
I thought it was kind of funny that they called it Inexpectus when they were naming it from an area that we've already found <laughs> two different alvarosaurs. Maybe they were all unexpected. Yeah. I think that's true because usually we see alvarosaurs in like Cretaceous South America. So it is a little surprising to see them in China. And these are actually from the Jurassic, which is even crazier. But then on top of that, finding a third individual of sort of the same body type is a lot of diversity for a small area. So it's kind of an unexpected level of diversity. And that's really the inexpectus. And I'm really just happy that it's not named after a place name or named Sinensis like a ton of Chinese dinosaurs are. So Shishugonychus is an alvarosauroid. Like I said, the original alvarosaurus basically just has one claw sticking out of each, each of its arms on its chest. So it, it's like these weird little chest claws. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even really like a, a hand. It's definitely not really an arm. And it was found in the Jungar Basin in Xinjiang, which is the farthest northwest territory in China. It's the same place that they found Shiunicus not long ago, and it's pretty close to Mongolia as well. They estimate it was alive between 161 and 159 million years ago, roughly. And Shishugonicus was only about 1.4 meters or 4 feet long, and I had to base this on their you know, drawn to scale skeletal drawing. They didn't actually put that in writing anywhere in there. And I think it might be because it's missing most of the animal. <laughs> so they didn't want to write down the exact length. But they did guess its weight and they said it was about 6.8 kilograms, which puts it about 15 pounds. So small. Yeah. I mean, every alvarosaur is under 50 kilograms. The earlier ones are generally larger than the later ones, like Alvarosaurus itself, the late Cretaceous is under two kilograms or four pounds. So they're all pretty small when you get there. They're just like weird chicken sized things with these claws. Fortunately for us, they did find most of some parts of Shishugonychus. They found most of its hand, which is probably the most exciting part being an alvarosaur. And since they have those weird hands, they found pieces of the arm, most of the legs, part of the hips, pieces from a foot, a few vertebrae, and a couple pieces of the jaw, skull, ribs, and some unknown bones. Or in other words, they found most of its limbs and a bit of the head and some other scattered stuff. They're confident that all of this comes from one individual, even though it's obviously pretty broken up and fragmentary. And that's because it was all found in the area of about two square feet <laughs> without any other bone nearby. So it seems to be isolated. So they're pretty happy to call it all the holotype and not do any of that paratype stuff. They found five lags when they did histology, and they think that four had been lost due to the large hollow cavity in the middle of the bone. And a quick refresher that lags are those lines of arrested growth that basically show it slowing growth in the winter, like lines in a tree, which means that this dinosaur was at least five years old because we can see five lags. And it was likely over nine years old when it died because of those four that have been lost. The lags are also getting pretty close together, so the authors think that it was done growing, or at least its fibula was, <laughs> since that's the bone that they were looking at. And they, quote, infer that the maximum body size of Shishugonychus inexpectus was constrained by its very slow growth rate, end quote. So I guess it could have gotten bigger if it grew faster, potentially, but it didn't, so it's small. Shishugonychus is from the Jurassic, which is awesome since most of the Alvarosaurs that we found are from the Cretaceous. 
And not surprisingly, it has more of a hand than the later alvarosaurs that basically just had those little tiny claws. Which we still don't know what they use them for. Yeah, I really liked the pet hypothesis that they were chest bumping eggs to break <laughs> them open with their claws. But everyone we've asked about that said like, no, that's not what they were doing. So it's kind of a bummer. The, the leading hypothesis seems to be that they were using them for termite nests. Mm -hmm. And we, I think we have a story about that in our new book too. Yes, we do. Obviously not Shishugonica since that one was just discovered, but one of these other recent alvarosaurs. Shishugonicus was found in the same formation as Haplochirus and Aurun, those other Jurassic alvarosauroids from the area, and they all lived within 1.5 million years of each other. So it's pretty cool. It's a pretty tight time range, especially for how different they were. And they were quite different. First of all, they were different sizes. Aurun was only about four kilograms or nine pounds. And then we said earlier that Shishugonicus was about 6.8 kilograms or 15 pounds, so about 50% bigger. And then Haplochirus was a massive, relatively speaking, 19 kilograms or 42 pounds. <laughs> and I think the reason that they can make these specific guesses at their weight, but not necessarily their length, is because if you have a load-bearing bone like a femur, then you can estimate the weight based on the size of the femur. They also found that all three of them had pretty different hand shapes and finger sizes and things like that. So they saw a lot of variability in those weird hands. It's like they were trying to figure out what to do with them. So they filled different niches. Yeah, potentially. Or they were trying different techniques for the same sort of prey. We don't really know what they were using them for, like we said, so it's hard to do too much guesswork there. One thing that I thought was really interesting is that they point out there are a lot of similarities between an alvarosaur hand, at least these early alvarosauroids, and ornithomimosaurs. So maybe they were either close relatives or they were just having convergent evolution where their hands were kind of getting shaped the same way for the same sort of behavior or the same sort of diet or something, which is really interesting because I never think about ornithomimosaurs and alvarosaurs in the same sentence or same thought. <laughs> With all the talk about how these are the only three that are known from the Jurassic, I had to double check the other two early alvarosaurs that we talked about last year, which are Sheunicus and Bonicus. But it turns out both of those were from the early Cretaceous, putting them tens of millions of years later, I think roughly 40 million years later. And their hands definitely look like they were less useful than Shishugonicus, but they were still hands. So even in those 40 million years, they hadn't gone down to the little claws that took about another 40 million years potentially. So it wasn't like these dinosaurs rapidly turned into just claw weirdos. They went through a long phase of not being quite as specialized. And also weirdly, Sheunicus and Bonicus, which came up so much later, were actually heavier than Shishugonicus. Sheunicus was 15 kilograms or 33 pounds, and Bonicus was 24 kilograms or 53 pounds, which was heavier than any of the dinosaurs that were in the earlier Jurassic. So I guess this general trend towards lighter weight wasn't all that consistent. And really, it was just the late Cretaceous ones that we think were really small. Yep. So now we have another weird alvarosaur. Yep. <laughs> Maybe they'll find some more unexpectedly. I think that's a given now. If it's found, it's unexpected. I'd like it to be like extra inexpectus or something mm. in the next one's name. Up next, we have another small dinosaur. 
And thanks to Eric for sharing this one with us on Discord. It's an article written by Philip J. Curry and David Evans, both of whom we've interviewed before and both have named and described tons of dinosaurs in Canada. This one was published in the Anatomical Record. In this paper, they were looking at new Saur ornitholestes specimens, trying to sort of expand and redescribe what we know about the genus. So Saur ornitholestes is a small, late Cretaceous velociraptor-looking guy from Canada, if you forget what Saur ornitholestes looks like. It's a very close relative of velociraptor. It's about one meter, three feet from snout to the base of the tail. It's only about 60 centimeters or two feet tall at the hip, and we assume that it's covered in feathers. So in the past, it's even been hypothesized that they were the same genus and just, you know, different growth series or there were slightly different individual variation between them. But the best way to test that is to look at some new finds and see if we can find some definitive differences or if they are in fact the same. So quick background, Saur ornitholestes was named back in 1978 from a fragmentary skull and fragmentary body remains. And the authors say that all the way up till 2013, we had found several more individuals, but none of them were in great shape. So they weren't really helping too much to sort of elucidate whether or not we could definitively say this is its own genus. Then in 2014, we got lucky and they found a nearly complete skeleton, including a very complete skull, which looks really great. So it's time to write a paper. Another interesting thing about this individual too is that it was found less than a kilometer from the original holotype in the dinosaur park formation in Canada. So it really adds credence that it's likely the same holotype as the named individual. The key takeaways that I got from the paper is that, quote, Although similar in body size to Velociraptor, the facial region of the skull is relatively shorter, taller, and wider, end quote. To my eyes, it looks very similar, but when you compare them side by side, you do notice that their skulls are slightly different shapes, which is probably enough on its own to make it its own genus. And as a side note, Cope probably lost another named dinosaur of his. Uh-oh. Well, he already <laughs> kind of lost the Bone Wars. Yeah. And this one also might have already been lost. I'm not sure when we talked about how many were still valid. I don't know if this one would have counted because he named a dinosaur named Zapsalus, which means thorough scissors. I really enjoy that. <laughs> but it was named from a single tooth. It's quite a tooth to get that name. We, they just named everything. <laughs> but yeah, this is a cool tooth. I guess it, it probably had a lot of wear on it and therefore it looked like it would have been a good scissor. That tooth slash dinosaur has been synonymized and unsynonymized a couple times. I don't think unsynonymized is really a word. I think technically the synonymy was just rejected. But since all that's required to synonymize something is writing a paper, it seems like if you write a paper that says that you don't accept the synonymy, you're kind of unsynonymizing it. Anyway, I digress. The new complete skull clearly shows that this Zapsalus tooth is just a sore ornitholestes second premaxillary tooth. So they found like the exact tooth that was isolated and had been named its own genus stuck in the skull of a named dinosaur. And although technically since Zapsalus was named first, one could argue, well, then Saur ornitholestes should now be named Zapsalus because that was the original name. I think the fact that it was just based on a single tooth means that they decided to use the holotype that actually included some other bones than just a tooth. 
And the last really interesting thing that I saw on the paper was that based on the wear on Sor Ornitholestes front teeth, the authors think that they might have been specialized for preening, meaning those teeth specifically were intended for straightening their feathers and picking out parasites off their skin or out of their feathers, which is really interesting. Yeah. We haven't really talked about that with dinosaurs. It's true. We know that birds do a lot of preening and then they sometimes have special features to their bill that helps them do that. But obviously Velociraptor and Sauronithelestes didn't have a beak, so they had to use their teeth to do it. So why not have a specialized tooth? Yeah. One more quick paper that Eric shared with us on Discord. This one was written by Mario Bronzati and others and published in PLOS One. It's all about researchers who CT scanned some Saturnalia skull and jawbones. And quick refresh, Saturnalia is a late Triassic sauropodomorph, meaning that it's a bipedal herbivore that's starting to look like a true sauropod, but with a shorter neck and shorter arms because it basically still had arms and not legs, those early sauropodomorphs. Most of them look basically like Platyosaurus. That's probably the most famous early sauropodomorph. And this one does look a fair amount like a tiny Platyosaurus. It's similar in size, actually, to Sauronithelestes, though. So we're not talking about giant herbivore at this point. We're talking about a little guy. And this paper points out some pretty big differences between Saturnalia and later sauropodomorphs. Specifically, they think that its skull was smaller than its ancestors, but not because it was swallowing plants, because we've talked before about how if you don't chew the plants and you're just swallowing them, you don't need a big head. But they think that its head got smaller because it would have been a more efficient way to catch and eat prey. Basically, a smaller head is easier to move around quickly, and therefore it evolved a smaller head to be a more agile hunter. They also looked at its jaw mechanics a little bit, and it appears to support that it had an omnivorous diet, whereas usually we talk about sauropodomorphs having herbivorous diets. Well, they're kind of in between. Yeah, very true. And we think that the earliest Triassic dinosaurs were all carnivores, so it would make sense that before sauropods became straight-up herbivores, they might have gone through an omnivore phase. Yep, that makes sense. In other news, in Idaho Falls, there's a new dinosaur exhibit at the Museum of Idaho that's called Darwin and Dinosaurs, and it's part of the museum's expansion. Well, sort of. The exhibit's going to be there until May 31st of 2020, but it's in a new part of the museum. So they have artifacts from Charles Darwin's life and work and then information about dinosaurs that were discovered in the 1800s. Cool. And in other exhibition news, there's a giant chicken skeleton <laughs> at the Denver Central Library in Colorado. When you say giant. I mean, it's much larger than a chicken, about 20 times larger. Oh, so it's like a scaled up. It's not like a chicken that won a state fair contest for largest chicken. No. <laughs> It's a 3D printed chicken. Oh, cool. So the exhibit's called Monument for the 308, and this chicken is nicknamed Chicky. Chicky's part of Black Cube, which is a Denver-based nomadic art museum that installs art in places that you don't normally see art, like in a library. And Chicky was created by Andreas Grainer, who's a German artist, and Andreas 3D printed the chicken. The reason it's called Monument for the 308 is because Chicky is a 308 broiler chicken, which is a chicken bred and raised to be eaten. And I had to look it up, and apparently Ross 308 is one of the most popular brands. Like I said, Chicky is 20 times the size of a broiler chicken and looks very dinosaur-like because, <laughs> you know, 
technically it is. <laughs> the Courtney Lane Still, the curator for Black Cube, said that the broiler chicken, quote, is a representative for the Anthropocene, which is the current geological era we're in. And the scale of this chicken alludes to previous geological eras, like the dinosaur eras, or I guess I should say the Mesozoic. But Chicky's a monument to the human impact on the world because it's possible that since we eat so many chickens, chicken bones will be one of the most common fossils marking this period of time, which we've talked about before. Yeah, I'm skeptical. Chicken bones break pretty easily and they're small. Well, there's really no way for us to know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We can speculate. Anyway, Chicky will be at the library until December 8th for anyone in the Denver area. It makes me think of other animals that I could scale up and 3D print huge versions of. Like what? Like a bat. Mm. Or I guess I could just print a full-scale dinosaur. That might be more exciting. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> It'd probably take me all year, though. <laughs> we would both enjoy the dinosaur, only you would enjoy the bat. That's true. This is why we have a dinosaur podcast, not a bat <laughs> podcast. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Alio Ramis, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. Alioramus was a tyrannosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Asia, in mostly Mongolia. It was bipedal and it had sharp teeth. It's only known from juvenile or subadult specimens, so it's not clear how big Alioramus could get as an adult. 
Kurzanov estimated it to be 16 to 20 feet or 5 to 6 meters long, but apparently he didn't take into account the fact that skulls lengthen or get deformed during fossilization, so this may be an overestimate. It's also hard to guess length from just a skull in general. Yes. Alliuramus did have more teeth than other tyrannosaurids. It had 76 or 78 teeth. And it had long legs, which is like other young tyrannosaurs. They had long legs. They could fill a different niche than larger adult tyrannosaurs. Because these long legs meant that they could hunt small, fast prey. There's two species, Alliuramus remotus and Alliuramus altai. The type species is Alliuramus remotus, which was named in 1976 by Sergei Kurzanov, and the name means different branch. The crest and low skull looked different from other tyrannosaurids, and Kurzanov thought that it was not closely related to other members of the family, which is why he named it different branch. Like different branch of the family tree, basically? Mm-hmm. It's not clear how Alliuramus is related to other tyrannosaurids. It may be closely related to Tarbosaurus batar. The holotype was found in the Gobi Desert, and they found a partial skull and three foot bones, also known as metatarsals in Mongolia, of Alliuramus remotus. Stephen Brusati and others described a second species, Alliuramus altai, in 2009, and there's a possible third species, Alliuramus sinensis, found in 2014 in China. I couldn't have guessed that's where that one was found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the Alliuramus altai holotype was found in the Nemet Formation in Mongolia in a 2001 expedition. And the species name altai refers to the Altai mountain range of southern Mongolia. And hopefully I'm pronouncing that right or in the ballpark, but I'm not sure. So the Alliuramus altai specimen was much more complete and it showed that Alliuramus was not a juvenile tarbosaurus because it looked different from juvenile tarbosaurus specimens that had been found. The Alliuramus altai specimen was about nine years old, and it had a long, slender lower jaw, but that could be a juvenile characteristic. The Alliuramus remotus skull was about 18 inches or 45 centimeters long, and that was long and low, and the nasal bones had five bony crests. The Alliuramus altai snout is about two-thirds of the skull length, and it had this thick nuchal crest, which is the part of the skull where the neck muscles attach, and that's similar to Tarbosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. Alliuramus altai had at least eight small horns on its face, including two horns below the eyes and a row on top of the nose, and adults may have had more ornamentation. That's cool. Yeah, but it's unclear why it had these crests on its snout. Alliuramus remotus may have also had eight horns on its skull, but the holotype's too fragmentary for us to know for sure. So based on the number of teeth, which were evenly spaced, and the narrow skull, Alliuramus probably didn't have a strong bite compared to other tyrannosaurs that had these deep, heavy skulls, so it could have gone for unarmored prey. Alliuramus lived alongside Tarbosaurus, so they went after different types of prey, and that's known as niche partitioning. It couldn't do the puncture-pull style of feeding like large adult tyrannosaurus that have really strong bite forces that could crush bone like Tarbosaurus, because Tarbosaurus had the short, deep skull. Just like T-Rex. Yes. Alliuramus lived in a wet, humid climate, possibly among sauropods, pachycephalosaurs, ankylosaurids, and hadrosaurs. And our fun fact of the day is that part of the drive towards big sauropods that happened in the early Jurassic may have been because of a quote-unquote floral turnover after the end Triassic extinction. I'm a little bit new to this topic, but it seems like fossilized pollen is the main way that we test plant diversity. 
And one study found that 60% of the pollen assemblages disappeared during the end Triassic extinction. And therefore we think that a lot of plants went extinct. Then we see a big increase in a new genus of plant pollen that seemed to pop up and fill in that gap where a lot of other plants went extinct. This is really the exact same thing that was happening with dinosaurs, because remember in the Triassic there were dinosaurs, but after the Triassic-Jurassic extinction, dinosaurs really proliferated and filled in all these gaps that were left by other animals going extinct. I'm not sure if this is related, but last year researchers in China found a bunch of flowers from the early Jurassic potentially pushing back the evolution of angiosperms by about 50 million years and almost getting back to that point of the mass extinction, but this is still being debated in peer-reviewed articles, so I'm not really sure if that's exactly related. So without this Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction, we might not have had huge sauropods like Brontosaurus. Well, that would have been a bummer. Good thing that happened. <laughs> yep. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our growing community and get some cool stuff from our SVP adventures in Australia, then join via our Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.